The small wagon belches plumes of effervescent smoke into the air from several crooked chimneys as it trundles along, accompanied by the soft clinking of glass. A gnome with a shock of curly green hair and an infectious smile whistles cheerfully as he guides the curious vehicle towards town from the plush driving seat. Pulling up in the bustling square, he plays to the gathering crowd as he hops down from the wagon and opens his stall. A banner unfurls above the newly opened storefront with a quippy name emblazoned upon it. This scene, Mobile Alchemy Shop, brought to you by Describe, Ready Roleplay. Visit Describe.com slash RPGBot and use code RPGBot at checkout for 5% off your first subscription payment. What was the quippy name? <laughs> Who knows? Uh, or maybe the banner just says a quippy name. But, but none of the villagers could read, so it was really... That's actually pretty quippy. <laughs> Welcome to this special RPGBot.QuickStart, How to Play Pathfinder 2nd Edition, Part 4. In this episode, we'll be talking with Ash about what stood out to him in Pathfinder 2 versus other Dungeon Fantasy tabletop RPGs, and we'll also answer any lingering questions that he has. So yeah, I guess let's step into it. Ash, what'd you think of Pathfinder 2? I really liked it. I thought that the multiple action-based system really adds a lot of flexibility and variety to combat and it felt like i was always able i was always doing something i felt like i was doing a lot in every uh round whereas like even in 5e i think the trap can be that it's like okay it's my turn i cast my cantrip or my spell and that's my turn <laughs> yeah but here i was like i was setting up traps i was debuffing people i was healing tyler it was all very fun um, and I felt like I was accomplishing a lot. And in the the problem that I have sometimes in 5th edition is I want to do too much. I'll be like, this is a really cool debuff, but do I want to spend my action on that and then wait a whole other turn before I do the next thing that I want to do? Like, especially with certain builds where you have to set up a bit before it comes online, that can be really frustrating. But with Pathfinder 2, it feels like there's enough flexibility that you could make a build like that work pretty well and feel like you're still still doing stuff. You're not just pre-buffing or pre-debuffing. Yeah, so that was the thing that stood out most to me was the three-action system was such an elegant system that I didn't think was going to do as much as it did. Yeah, having having played a bit of PF2 and written quite a bit for it, like I, I had the same experience initially going in. Like, three-action system looked like, okay, yeah, so every turn the fighter is just going to attack three times that uh, i mean if it, it feels like the same as 5e but three times as many attacks but no uh once you get into it the nuance comes out almost immediately like there's so much you can do with that space and there's so much flexibility and you still like basically any character is going to feel like you have a lot that you can do on any given turn yeah and the thing about it is that if they had just kept like everything pretty consistently like this is an action this is an action this is two actions then it probably would have just come down to what you were describing where the person just attacks three times but what's great about it is that they have even within like the i can only speak to my character so i don't know exactly how it works for martial characters but even in the same spell 
that I was casting, there are three different options for it based on how many actions I feel like spending, which is so cool. Um, (laughs) And I love that. I think that's that's fantastic. And while I initially went into feeling like maybe some trepidation about oh, one of those actions is to move. So really, I have two actions. But having the the movement share the same pool of actions as your other stuff makes it more strategic. And it feels like because you can't take your movement for granted anymore. You have to you have to think like, okay, I can do these two things, but then I have to stay where I am. Or I can move away from the thing that's trying to hit me, but I won't be able to do as much. So yeah, I like stuff that allows me to think more <laughs> and not <laughs> shut off my brain. Yeah, I feel like one of you had a scenario where you needed to like approach, do something. I think it might have just been attack, and then you you had a reason that you wanted to get out of there. And and even that choice of do I stay in combat range or because not everything is guaranteed to have an attack of opportunity, maybe I use my third action to move again just to get out of melee range or to force this thing to burn an action to come to me. Yeah, uh, I, I do like that not everybody gets access to attacks of opportunity because I feel like attacks of opportunity really make combat kind of static. Because nobody wants to move because they don't want to get attacks of opportunity. So basically, the way it works in 5th edition, even in Pathfinder 1, is all the monsters and players converge on each other. And then where that that starts, that's kind of where it's going to end. Not a lot of movement's going to (laughs) happen. Maybe a five-foot step every once in a while, yeah. Maybe, but again, that's Pathfinder (laughs) 1. In 5e, you can't really do that unless you're a rogue. The rogues are the only ones that are allowed to move. (laughs) Everyone else is just running laps inside that safety donut. Yep. Yeah. So how did you feel about the complexity of this compared to fifth edition? So we only played at first level. So I can't speak to if it gets more complicated later on, but it didn't feel overly complicated. It felt pretty intuitive. I will say like the amount of choice that I have in terms of feats was a little overwhelming, but once I realized, oh, I can only qualify for a handful of these feats, it wasn't too bad. Especially if you're new to the system, you're not going to know like which part is optimal, which isn't. But that's what the that's what our website is there for. Yep. Um, and that was definitely <laughs> helpful when I was building my oracle. Yeah, I I was worried that casting a casting class was going to be really complicated because it is in Pathfinder one. Oh boy. Oh boy. Is it complicated <laughs> in Pathfinder one? Uh, <laughs> uh, so that's why I wanted to play a caster class. Cause I was like, if I like a caster class better than I do in Pathfinder one, this is a winner in my book. And I did, I thought that it was a lot easier to wrap my mind around how spell casting works even though it's kind of similar to Pathfinder 1, but it didn't feel like frustrating. It felt like they listened to some of the complaints about like, especially how prepared casters worked and added a little bit of flexibility to that. But yeah, no, it didn't feel overly complicated. Now, that being said, I do want to ask, does it get more complicated? Is this a thing that does get uh, feel more and more complex and overwhelming the higher level you are? Or does it stay stay relatively same same manageable level of complexity throughout 
I don't know if I would say like extra complexity. I, I know that we've talked about before the idea of signature spells and heightened spells. I think that's a little bit more complexity than what you're going to deal with coming from fifth edition, but it it's, it's not, not approachable, right? You read it. It's going to make sense. Um, I think if you have a little bit of trouble, there's plenty of guides that, that would walk through and kind of explain here exactly is the trade-offs that you're making. And I think ultimately it feels like it might be limiting because you can have signature spells, I think most folks are going to find it isn't that limiting to what you're doing. You'll take particular spells at particular levels, and the things you love, like fireballs, you'll take a signature spell and you'll be ready to party. As far as prepared casters go, and I'm going to look to Tyler for this, honestly, it's not that much more complex than what you have in 5e, right? Mm-hmm. Yes and no. So so 5e's prepared casters you prepare your spells at the beginning of the day and then you can feed your spell slots into those prepared spells however you like um in pf2 prepared casters have to map their spell slots to an individual prepared spell at the beginning of the day so like i have first level magic missile third level fireball and whatever else like i have those things prepared if you want to cast a spell twice you have to prepare it again so essentially like you're building yourself a deck of cards at the beginning of the day and basically can't change that throughout the day so that that rigidity from 3x from pf1 that's still there to some degree um there is some flexibility within spells like some spells allow you to do those multiple action options like ash called out heal harm magic missile a few others all let you do stuff like that so yeah it it is a little bit rigid compared to 5e but that is part of the balancing mechanism that keeps spellcaster from running away with things Um, pf2's caster martial balance is a lot better than 5e's so like 5e famously a wizard can just solve most problems uh pf2 like the wizard has options to solve most problems but they're they're frequently not as good as a character who is specialized in solving that problem or they might have some failure chance or they're very expensive to use things like that so there's always some limitation that keeps wizards from running away with the game yeah i will say that like coming from 5e can be kind of frustrating to going to pathfinder one and uh also in pathfinder two to like why can't i just prepare a set number of spells and then feed my spell slots into that rather than like why do i have to pick out what okay i'm going to cast this spell a number of times per day this spell a number of times per day i think while i do like the flexibility of fifth edition tyler's right it really balanced the swung the balance of power to casters because suddenly you have casters who are like swiss army knives they just can do whatever they want when they need it and some classes can even switch out spells on the fly uh if they want to uh so if i can just like well give me 10 minutes and i can change (laughs) out my spell and solve the problem that you wanted to solve uh uh rogue who specialized in investigation sucks (laughs) to be you um <laughs> think a caster <laughs> next time this time it's uh, like with pathfinder it's like well i maybe could have helped that if i knew that i was gonna have to deal with that but i can't because i already picked my spells whereas like the investigator is like no worries this is my specialty this is what i'm always <laughs> good at so it does feel like casters are not so so much the one size fits all solution to a problem they are you have to specialize essentially because especially if you're a spontaneous caster like i was our oracle you get very limited spells to work with yeah (laughs) and aside from your signature spells like 
you gotta know that you're using those spells a lot, <laughs> which is why I picked the two classics, which were a heal and harm, because I didn't know anything else about the system. I'm like, I know I'm gonna use these, <laughs> um, and it worked. And because, and the thing about those two spells is that they're they're classic spells, and they're also very flexible, so they feel like three spells in one, which is great. So yeah, just because. And that's one of the things that I do appreciate about Pathfinder 2 as opposed to Pathfinder 1 is that there is some flexibility in some of the spells and how you cast them. So it still feels like you have some of the flexibility of 5th edition without it being, I'm just a Swiss army knife. (laughs) Um, So I I kind of glossed over your question about complexity at higher levels so it it does get a little more complicated as you add levels um characters will have more buttons to push spells will get bigger and more exciting and so will other characters feats a lot of classes have like a built-in combo that you'll build up over the first few levels of the class and get better at over time and add stuff to but there's also a lot of room for opt-in complexity which is one of those things that i really highlight as a high point of 5e is you can have a character who is like i have one one thing that i do really well and it's really simple and then there's another character who does like all these complicated things and has a crazy combo that that they rely on and you can put those characters in a party and they work alongside each other pf2 has that too to some degree the complexity floor is a little higher than 5e so it can be a little harder to get into but like you still have those safe simple options that characters can build around like you can build a fighter who works like most of my turns are going to be I'm going to attack twice and then raise my shield. And that can still be a really, really effective character without a ton of complexity. And then you can have like the swashbuckler in the party who is a comparable martial character is like, OK, I need to do a backflip and then I'm going to faint and then I'm going to use a finishing move and deal a big pile of damage to end this combo. And that's my turn. Like you have to do all these checks and cool things. And it feels very, very fun. And those two characters can work just fine alongside each other. One of the things that I really liked about the PF2 core rulebook for each class, there is a table that walks through when you level up, when you go from level two to level three, these are the changes that you're taking. And so from that, I think the decision-making can be complex because there's a lot of options available to you. So you have to weigh these things carefully. You might want to look ahead to see what am I really working to if I take this feat that's then going to allow me to take the next feat a few levels later. And so I think there's complexity. If you're not looking to optimize and you just want to like read what looks attractive right now and make a decision, I would say there's not a lot of complexity in leveling up your character because it's as simple as going to your class, looking at that table, looking at the level you're going to, and taking one of each thing they tell you to take. Yeah, uh, that's uh, another thing that I did appreciate coming from Pathfinder 1 to Pathfinder 2. A big issue that I have with Pathfinder 1 and something that uh, some of my friends really like is there are so many feats, like an overwhelming (laughs) amount of feats, and you get one every two levels, and you can take them from anywhere and there's like 10 different categories of feats and each of those has like 50 but the thing about it was that there were a few that you just had to take otherwise your character would not function and so there's the 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 concept of the feat tax in pathfinder which 
really sucks. But Pathfinder 2, at least from what I can tell, doesn't seem to have that issue. And a big part of that is that like you get different feats at different levels. So like some feats are like, okay, you're going to do general feats for this one. Uh, for this level and uh, racial feats for this level and skill feats for this ra- level rather than just like you get a feat figure it out <laughs> <laughs> so it is yeah. it's just a more cohesive system that is not as overwhelming and doesn't feel like there are any feats that I really have to take. I mean, there are obviously optimal feats, but I don't feel like I'm absolutely destroying my character if I don't take them. Yeah, feat taxes are considerably less common in PF2. I think I've run into like one or two examples, and they felt super, super weird. Usually usually it's class feats within some specific like subclass, and it's like uh, there are subclass specific class feats for this subclass we strongly recommend that you take them you technically don't have to but it's kind of how we expect you to play this and you'll get like three or four of those over the course of your 20 level character build so even then like not every decision point is made for you yeah and that was the problem like in pathfinder one base level if you wanted to be a martial character, you had to take like five different feats. Like, uh, <laughs> like if you're a gunslinger, okay, I got to take the one that makes it so that I can shoot through my allies square because somehow that's a feat. I have yep. to take one that I can shoot people when I'm in melee. Oh, I also have to take one that allows me to power attack. Like it's all this nightmare, uh, stuff, uh, which is why in my Pathfinder one home game that my, gm is running uh we have rolled all of those feet taxed ones into one feat that just everybody gets called combat feats which just allows your character <laughs> to function in combat uh so that's appreciated and i like that <laughs> um, uh so the thing that i did want to ask is uh especially coming from pathfinder one and i know we didn't engage with this is grappling still a nightmare i'm gonna leave a dramatic pause in the audio here um <laughs> Yes and no. So I I come from third edition where grappling involved a two page long flowchart and I found PS1. It's the same as gra- Pathfinder, Pathfinder 1 kind of. Believe me, it used to be way worse. Oh. Uh, in uh, in 3X, like in 3035, it was an opposed check. So you had twice as many rolls for the same things. Hmm. Uh, yeah. So in PF2, it's a little higher maintenance, but like the mechanics are much simpler. Um, You you roll an athletics check to grab your target. They gain the grappled condition while they're grappled. Their speed is reduced to zero. Um, And then the grapple ends at the end of your following turn. So if you want to keep someone grappled, you have to spend an action every turn to continue trying to grapple them. And that prevents things like the 5e grapple shove combo from becoming a problem so like it's a little more maintenance than 5e but it's way way less abusable that's not that's not too bad like especially considering from pathfinder one like you said there was still that flow chart (laughs) Uh, it was i i am sure it was better than 3.5 but man was it still a nightmare yeah (laughs) still bad (laughs) um so that is that is nice because that was one of the big questions that uh some of my players who I'm trying to convince to play Pathfinder 2 for our next game, one of their questions was, is grappling still a nightmare? <laughs> um, it's much uh, easier. Yeah, so that's good. 
Are, are there any vital systems, like things that come up a lot that we didn't really touch on in the first, in that session? Yeah. Uh, let's see. So there were quite a few things we didn't hit on. So there's exploration mode, which we didn't touch on. Um, basically, when you're out wandering the world, you're not on initiative time, you're crawling a dungeon or whatever, you're in what's called exploration mode. And in exploration mode, your character does unactivity in addition to just generally like, what is the party doing? So you can be scouting, searching ahead, avoiding notice, things like that. So like all of those things where the player says like, oh, we go into this room and I hide in case we go into combat. You can just say DM or GM, I am avoiding notice. And that has some mechanical benefit. And like all of those are spelled out very clearly. So everyone can just say, this is what I'm doing while we explore. Um, and you're rewarded for making that choice. And it um, it keeps the kind of narrative time stuff still controlled by the mechanics. And then if combat does break out, you get some benefit for whatever activity you were taking. Um, we also didn't touch on the downtime rules, which are pretty robust and let you do all kinds of things, crafting, earning an income, research, things like that. And those can be a lot of fun to play with, especially between sessions. Um, so you have those three modes of play. We really only hit on combat and we did a little bit of social interaction, which is technically done in exploration mode, but it it's fuzzy there. Yeah, I was about to say that we didn't do like the after combat cleanup uh, oh, yeah. where making medicine checks and getting folks fixed up is like a critical thing that you're going to do in PF2 that you're probably going to handle pretty differently in 5e. But we actually did do this, and if I remember correctly, <laughs> Ash, your character almost killed killed Tyler's character on a failed medicine check. Yeah, I did, but that's why I had a heel <laughs> in my back pocket. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's a. I, I wanted to emphasize that that is a critical mechanic. Like that's something that folks will get used to after combat. If your shield got damaged, let's repair your shield. If your people got damaged, let's repair your people. Um, ultimately, take that time to clean things up. This can mean anywhere from 10 minutes to an hour of kind of downtime before you go do the next thing that you're going to go do. But it, it, it's kind of a almost a built-in assumption of the game that you're going to take on those kind of activities when the GM's pacing allows it. Um, do you remember the like transfer curse spell that you cast on the cockatrice? Oh, uh, yeah. It was part of my time uh, oracle thing. It was a feature. Uh, one of my focus... Temporal distortion is a focus spell. Yeah. So one of the things you do after combat is you refocus, you spend 10 minutes generally right. just standing, staring into space, and you get all your focus points back. So you have those short rest recharge spells in addition to your daily pool of spells. Does that also reduce my curse level, or is that something that I have to deal with separately? Um, I'm struggling to remember off the top of my head, but I want to say that for the Oracle, it does. Okay. That's not too bad, though. Yeah. So a big question that I have, especially since I'm thinking of running this for my next game, how much more complicated is this to run than 5th edition? And is the onboarding process difficult? So the the ease of planning, setting up, and running a PF2 game is one of the things that PF2 fans really, really emphasize. Um, if you have ever tried to balance an encounter for 5e, you'll frequently find that CR is not a super great metric in 5e. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the creatures just don't fit the CR math super well, and then like special abilities aren't handled especially well within CR. So um, you can build an encounter that should be easy and then TPK your party, and then the next day you can build like a, a twice 
deadly encounter and they can walk through it in one round and all, all of that is within the same system pf2's encounter building uses just an xp budget so like every monster has an xp value that you then you know buy using that budget and you end up with a balanced encounter um that's really great to hear yeah, like all if you need to improvise uh, DCs for anything, like the GM screen is fantastic and just has a table like they are this level. I want it to be this amount of difficult for them. Here's the number I need. Go. Um, there's there's a million tools for this game. And since everything's published um, under the open gaming license and very soon under the uh, the orc license, uh like all of these tools are free to build and distribute. So people build wonderful new tools for free for this game that are available all over the place. Yeah. One thing I'll say that I have found a bit challenging is a lot of times in 5e, there isn't a specific rule. And so the, as a DM, you just have to make a choice. Mm -hmm. And some folks hate that, right? Some folks would rather it be like clearly spelled out. What I've observed in Pathfinders, almost anytime I'm not sure about the rules there is a rule and if i spend enough time i will find it uh i think that's where you know searching the internet is your friend more than trying to use the index to find it in a physical book uh and so you can (laughs) tend to resolve things pretty quickly my style is almost always i'm going to rule in a way that i think makes sense and we'll look it up later and figure it out sometimes like hey player you caused this look it up while we move to the next person and then let (laughs) us know how we're actually supposed to handle this just depending on how you prefer this, if, if you're excited by the idea of like, there is a rule, I will get it right, let's just do the research and get it, or I'll do that prep to make sure that the things that are likely to come up are things I'm prepared to handle. I, I think that's fantastic. If you're a person who feels like you need to go into every session ready for every potential outcome, it can be a, a bit unnerving to feel like you have to go into every session knowing how every effect works, You know what every tag means, the impact of every spell that your characters might be casting. Um, I think the better approach is just be willing to go into the game and, you know, when something comes up and you're not sure, just be patient, be willing to do a quick search, make a rule and then go forward. Yeah, I do. I do appreciate that. Like I, I don't mind making a ruling in the moment, but then I like to know the answer because a lot of times my rulings are bad (laughs) Uh, and my players will say that was a bad call. And now I have like, well, it's what the book says. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I, too often in fifth edition, I've gotten into arguments between players and DMS about like, no, it should work this way or that way. And then we have to go and do a internet search on forums and see, did Jeremy Crawford say anything about this? (laughs) No, shoot. (laughs) We've all been there. Yeah. Uh, One and one more thing I want to call out with rules. So PF2 has a tagging system, basically every rules object, monsters, feats, spells they'll have a system of tags that describe how the thing works um a lot of the times those things are just descriptive like the orc tags it's like oh this thing is associated with orcs um but sometimes those tags have their own rules like the polymorph tag has the central rules for every polymorph spell so whenever you're looking at something and and like i need to read this thing and understand how it works make sure you check those tags because sometimes they'll have some extra information and a lot of times 
like a, a two sentence spell or feat or whatever it looks very simple, but it's because the complexity is buried in those tags. So it's I, not always intuitive, but it does mean that everything works the same way. I do like that, though. It does organize it a bit better, especially because I have to feel like they learned from Pathfinder 1, which was a big problem <laughs> where they would just be like, uh, this person is uh, uh, is grappled or whatever. And then it would just be like, well, what does that mean? OK, I have to hunt in this thing about combat stuff. Where's the section about grappling? Um, it, it's such a nightmare. So it is nice when they just have that tag. It's like, okay, I can just search that tag and find what I'm looking for. So yeah. Archives of Nethys, boom, done. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so much better organized than uh D20 SRD. Well, <laughs> <laughs> so Tyler, I actually haven't looked at the starter set for Pathfinder two. Oh, uh, Gosh, you know, I think I ran it for a group while you were out of town once. So it's it's excellent. Um, it it has that pick a path style solo adventure to, you know, walk you through the basics of the mechanics. And then the actual starter set adventure itself is a dungeon crawl. It, it's very linear, like this isn't some amazing story, but it is a dungeon crawl. And each room has an encounter in it that will teach you some set of mechanics about the game. So it's a it very much a learn as you play uh, adventure. And it yeah, it's very simple, comes with pre gen characters. It's not as good at teaching how to run the game as I think the like the Call of Cthulhu starter set is. Um, but it it's still an absolutely fantastic little module. It's available on like every virtual tabletop as well as physically. So it's very easy to get a hold of. But yeah, it, it is a fantastic place to start. And considering so much of the Pathfinder rules content is available for free, you can get like the starter set and the core rule book and read through those two and and have everything you need and technically you could never spend another dime on source materials for pathfinder but i think as you play the game you're going to find like the adventures are also really really amazing very well written um and the source books are really cool like they've got a lot of cool art and great ideas in them but yeah archives of nethys is a great reference tool when you're looking up like feats and monster sats and stuff like that and then if you're looking for adventure paths uh and, and i guess it's worth saying like what I guess what what do we call them in 5e? It's an adventure book. A campaign. There we go. Perfect. Yeah. So in Pathfinder 2, you'll hear them referred to as adventure pads. There's a lot of fantastic adventure pads that are out there. Uh, uh, Kingmaker was famously a video game. It's also a adventure path from Pathfinder 1, now available in Pathfinder 2. It's a 1 to 20 adventure um, that looks really awesome, and I'm looking forward to running it. Uh, you know, Abomination Vaults is another really cool one. There's a lot of great content out there. Um, again, the Pathfinder Society, we've talked about that in the past on other episodes. Uh, Pathfinder Society is a great way to go and engage with other role players. Uh, on, if you want to run it for your home table, they're available from the Paizo website. So you can actually just go buy the ARC and kind of have built-in sessions that you might run in a day or you might spread them out over a view sessions. Um, but ultimately, that campaign is kind of put together for you. So yeah, I, I think the punchline is there's a lot of great content out there. Uh, we will have links in the show notes. Uh, so if you want to support this podcast, yeah, you know, go take a look. All hail the Leisure Illuminati. 
I'm Randall James. You'll find me at AmateurJack.com and on Twitter and Instagram at JackAmateur. I'm Tyler Campstra. You'll find me at RPGBot.net, Facebook and Twitter, RPGBOTDOTNET, most other socials as RPGBot. Uh, I'm Ash Eli. You'll find me on Twitter at Graven Ashes, or you can find me on YouTube under the username Ash Raven Media or my tag at Graven Ashes as well. If you've enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcast and rate us on Spotify or your favorite podcast app. It's a quick free way to support the podcast and helps us to reach new listeners. You'll find links in the show notes. You'll find affiliate links for source books and other materials linked in the show notes, as well as on RPGBot.net. Following these links helps us to make the show happen every week. Please also consider supporting us on Patreon, where you'll find ad-free podcast episodes, early access to RPGBot.content, polls for future content, and access to the RPGBot.discord. You'll find us at patreon.com slash RPGBot. I don't All think right. I'm going to say anything clever, though. <laughs> there you a go. Little Do you need to go refocus? <laughs> well, I hope that. you find a path to your bed. Uh. <laughs>